0: Star Wars 7x7 episode 3026. It's the second half of my conversation with Chris Kemshaw, the author of The History and Politics of Star Wars, about the history and politics of the Andor series to date. Punch it! Hey Rebel Rouser, I'm Alan Voivod and this is Star Wars 7x7, your daily dose of Star Wars joy. And thank you so much for joining me for it. So here again is the official bit about Chris Kemshall. Chris is a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Exeter and a senior research fellow at the Center for Army Leadership, Royal Military Academy, Sandhurst. He is a historian of the First World War as well as popular representations of history and modern media. He has authored numerous academic works including the First World War in computer games and British, French, and American relations on the Western Front 1914 to 1918, and of course, the history and politics of Star Wars earlier this year. And as I mentioned on yesterday's episode, Chris was kind enough to share a 25% discount code with us, and so that is on the blog post for this show's episode at SW7X7.com and in the show notes as well, along with a link to where you can pick that up. And as for the conversation itself, well, as I said on yesterday's episode, it covers a broad range of topics, including his reactions to Andor, both as a fan and as a historian, what he's seeing about the Empire and how it's depicted in the Andor series, as well as the Preox Morlana Corporate Authority. I just got my consonants mixed up there for a second. Also, the rebellion, the burgeoning rebellion as it's being formed, and that brilliant monologue from Nemec, That is just enough, just enough to reflect on our contemporary politics. Also, a discussion for our mutual dislike for Perrin and our appreciation for Alistair McKenzie for his performance in the role of the person you love to hate, as well as some speculation about where the Andor series is potentially going. And I was really surprised by the thing that he pulled, Chris did for this, and I think he's got you know a really interesting idea for it. So without further ado, here is the second half of my conversation with historian Chris Kemshall about the Andor series so far. And I wonder also about Mon Mothma and Luthen Rail and whether their paths are about to diverge. Now that Luthen has his own source of money and he's not having to look for Mon Mothma to fund his operations, I wonder if that means that he's about to go you know, his, his own separate way and possibly even you know that that road leads to Sogarerra and the divergence between Mon Mothma's methods and Sogarerra's methods that you know, becomes more formal a couple of years down the line.
1: Yeah, I I was going to say that I could see Luther ending up as somewhere at, heading towards the middle point of Mon Mothma and Sogarerra on the like the the Rebel Alliance mm. political spectrum, um, where you know Guerrera as we know from appearances in Rebels and Rogue One, is more than happy to fight this war in whatever manner he sees fit. And Mothman was not willing to do that, certainly not at this point in time. Um, and if we get to a point when, you know, there are reprisals and there are you know killings and there are massacres, lutheran and Andor, you know, effectively have a choice, you know, if Andor's going to, you know, throw himself in with the rebellion, which we know that he will do, um, is, you know, how are you going to fight this war? You know, we know from when Saw Gerrera appears in Rebels and he has this kind of amazing um, hologram conversation debate with one Mothma where he says, if you continue to fight this war in the Empire's terms, you are going to lose. Um, mm-hmm. Is is Luther going to decide that, you know, the diplomatic gently gently let's you know just have a couple of bank heists and we'll you know drain a little bit of the money away from the empire and we'll do it that way is that the way to win a war or if you're going to fight a war are you going to are you going to have to fight it are, you know are you going to use this money to finance rebel sales Are you going to use it to buy weapons are you going to use it to do things with because it's not entirely clear what Mothma is planning on spending the money on that he was trying to kind of gather up for for Lutheran is it you know some kind of sophisticated leaflet campaign um or is is he planning on buying a bunch of guns um and you know that's not to say that mon mothma is wrong and saw guerrero is right but you know these are the the different political viewpoints that are existing in this kind of nascent rebel alliance and it's going to be very very interesting to see which Kind of sides of the spectrum these characters fall, particularly after Cassian has you know the, the prolonged conversation about um the role of mercenaries in um yeah, in the Rebel yeah. Alliance. Um you know at the moment he's a mercenary at what point does he become an ideologue? Um it might be after reading this manifesto. <laughs>
0: yes <laughs> which I hope gets released as a book at some point too because oh, I think be that would great, be right wouldn't it? Yes. Oh, yeah, it would be fantastic. I I hope they've planned that far (laughs) ahead for this. And I think Mon Mothma is also going to get tested in terms of, you know, the levels at which she can accept political violence. I mean, she has been, I guess, a pacifist from the jump, certainly from the Clone Wars situation. And in other Star Wars storytelling, she and Padme have had their disagreements because of the whole aggressive negotiations thing. And I think it was um, in the the last novel of E.K. Johnston's Padme trilogy that came out last year, they get into a brief argument where Padme basically says, look, if you didn't expect aggressive negotiations to happen, you shouldn't have sent me, because that's what's going to happen when I go there. And so, you know, she has to go, okay, yeah, point taken. Uh, but she has to be moving further along in the spectrum. And as seems like with her conversations with Luthen is trying to keep herself at least removed from knowing actually what's happening, even though she understands that she has, you know, political danger for herself, if they're caught doing what they're doing.
1: Yeah, um, and the danger to Mom Mothma is not the same as the danger for people like Andor who are out on the front line. But she's making it clear that you know she is being spied upon constantly. The Empire has kind of, you know, infected every aspect of the world around her, um, as as she's viewed as a kind of a, a dubious actor. Um, and you know, at some point, clearly, you know, as we see it as, as Rogue One, um, Mon Mothma reaches the point of saying, you know, the only way this is going to be resolved is through warfare. Um, so kind of seeing those those early steps towards that at the moment, I will say that um, if it took that long for, for Mom Mothma to kind of um, shed her kind of ex- kind of more kind of absolutist pacifism um, by Rogue One, then her husband should consider himself to be a very lucky man because I'd have killed him years ago. Um, <laughs> so if I was with them, um, God, that's just awful. Awful man, I hate him.
0: Um, uh, so first, let's let's give. Um, I I do want to do this because I I mentioned him a few times in episodes and didn't name the actor when I was doing it. I felt badly. Alistair McKenzie, I think is this the name of the gentleman who plays Heron. And I, I I do want to say you know, how you know, thrilled I am with him because he has created the character that I love to hate
1: the most, <laughs> the most. Oh, it's a great portrayal. It really is. But I do hate him.
0: Yes, and I, I just, you know, I want to like sit down with Mon and go, how did this happen? How did you end up? Oh, oh, god!
1: You you deserve to be happy, Mon. This isn't, this isn't the life that we wanted for you. Um, Yeah. Somebody inviting over, genuinely the worst people imaginable for dinner. Um, Mm -hmm. Go, oh, you know, you because they're fun. Because they're fun like I, I saw some of those in the in the opera scene at Revenge of the Sith those people did not look like they were fun um <laughs> I wouldn't want them in my house um and come oh. over for for dinner so like, oh, you know what you know Mom Mothma's got a got a busy time um you know trying to trying to do the things and, and and you know be a pacifist and and help with all of these these problems how about if I gather up just absolute garbage people and bring them into our house for her when she gets home um wouldn't that wouldn't Uh, that be a trick you know what she's gonna enjoy it so much i'm not even gonna tell her um we'll just we'll just (laughs) find out when she gets home it's like oh surprise surprise the emperor's friends are coming to dinner won't that be a delight uh uh
0: i mean and fun Oh and I thought it couldn't, you know, get worse than that, but then the next episode where he's just completely undermining her as a mother and a parent. I mean, just the the looks that he's giving the daughter and kind of like encouraging her to, you know, be as, you know, difficult and and obnoxious to her mother as possible and not even supporting her at all, not providing any kind of united front. Oh my
1: gosh. Oh you also end up with this really interesting view of Mon Mothma coming from her daughter of basically careerist politician who's in it for the publicity. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously there's an element of that's a role that she has to play in order to not get picked up by the Emperor's goons. But it, what we know of Mon that's not who she is. You know, she is right. a, she is a she, she is an idealist. Um, and to have that view of her. You know there's an element of, I can, you can almost understand it coming from a child who feels like they've been neglected by somebody who is you know very visibly in the public eye and whilst i don't like it you can kind of understand you know children have a view of their parents but that asshole sat on the other side of the table you sir have crossed the line <laughs> sat there with yes. your knowing side eye glances and your stupid haircut <laughs> and he
0: is contributing to that i mean if he were it seems like he and the daughter have a decent relationship you know as yeah. I mean, decent as these things go but he could be using that relationship to be supportive of mon and say to the daughter you know lita uh lita um you know hey like she's got other things going on she does care about you you know they yeah but obviously mon can't even share with him some of the stuff that she's doing because he clearly wants to have fun with all the bad guys, and why like, does everything have to be so you know boring and sad? Like that's his complaint.
1: And it, it's uh. it's a, it's such a and again this is this is one hundred percent a political commentary of you know I don't think it's necessarily uh, a shock that the you know the the wealthy white guy um in a position of privilege and comfort is the one go why does everything have to be about politics why can't things just be fun <laughs> you're always concerned about these work things and these people getting killed and stuff like that can't we just have dinner and turn the news off it's like well firstly shut up but secondly have you have you looked <laughs> at the world outside the the the, the, mm-hmm. sh- the absolute kind of crushing sense of comfort that you must exist in to be able to go honestly just turn the news off there's only so many massacres that i can that i can bother paying attention to. And it's the other side of that, the pace of oppression is outstripping our ability to accept it or, or to deal with it in that, you know, you have certain characters who are going, this is happening too much, it's happening too quickly, we need to try and find a way to deal with this. And then you get Perrin going, mm-hmm. oh, I'm just, I'm just disengaged, it's just boring background noise now, I I want to have a dinner party. Oh, Oh, I honestly would rather go to dinner with the emperor. To go to dinner with Perrin <laughs> because at least you know I was I'm, I was moaning I, me and Kristen Baver have been I've been joking about Perrin um I think you know at least Palpatine is charismatic and charming and probably can tell an anecdote Perrin yes. is just awful um and you know he's invited oh, you know I keep saying he's invited these awful people to dinner but at least once he's invited those awful people to dinner they're going to leave Perrin's gonna stay He's going to continue Uh, uh, living in your house.
0: So do you, what do you think happens to him and their daughter by the time of Rogue One? I mean, obviously just because they're not in the movie, that doesn't mean, you know, the worst has happened. They're dead. Like they're just not there. And we know that Mon is officially on the run and, you know, on the most wanted list as of, I think, two BBY, if I remember my dates, but, I mean, I can't imagine a world where Perrin is like, yeah, Mon, let's you know go on the lamb and I'm here for you, and I'm supporting this rebellion. Like, yeah, that's I've always wanted how, to live out of a suitcase. Right?
1: That's not how this is going to go. So what is going to happen? Ah. Oh. Yeah, that I don't know, because, <laughs> you know, you could start taking off the options, you know, rounded up and killed, giving one Mothmore an additional kind of motivator to overthrow the Empire, but I I don't like that for a couple of reasons. Firstly, I don't think her daughter deserves to die. No, Perrin can no. Perrin Agreed. can make his own bed. Um, yeah. <laughs> but also, yeah. I I prefer the idea that Mon Mothma is doing all of this out of idealism and ideology. It's it's too yeah. much of a trope at times, I think, of, oh, the Empire killed my family, and then I realised that they were bad. It's like, well, did you not notice about the family next door when they got killed? Um, right. mm-hmm. And so... I wonder if the kind of the realistic aspect of this is either knowingly as a kind of a, we're going to play this role, is that they basically kind of, um, what's the word I'm looking for, Um, detach themselves from Mothma and say, you know, she is you know, a wild extremist. We have no interest in her. We are loyal imperial citizens and we're going to, you know, you're going to keep us alive because of the propaganda benefits of having her daughter and her husband say she's a rogue, you know, kind of um, Mm -hmm. fanaticist um, stirring up trouble. Now, I could imagine the daughter just being like, "Okay, we're going to play this role because, you know, I don't want to get killed. Um, And maybe Perrin will show a depth of humanity that as of yet remains untapped. But that's kind of what I'm <laughs> hoping, that that, that mm-hmm. nothing serious happens to them, because I think it's more interesting if it doesn't. And at some point, you know, a decision has to be made whether to disavow yourself of Mon Mothma and the Rebel Alliance ideology or go, actually, I quite like the Empire. Um, and, you know, that becomes a, a more difficult thing for Mon Mothma to go over than just, oh, you know, stormtroopers came up and they shot everybody.
0: I... I agree with you on that. I think, yeah, it is too much of a trope to have them, you know, be sacrificed at the at the hands of the empire. And it definitely offers more opportunity for for chaos and also for more like gnashing of teeth and yeah. like clawing of hands with whatever parents' antics are gonna be next. Oh goodness. <laughs> All right um you've been so generous with your time Chris are are there any final oh absolutely and it's a joy to talk to you and do you have any final thoughts about and or so far as it's been that you that you'd like to share
1: um there's there's a couple of things I've noticed I found super interesting and I've, I've kind of I've talked about a few of these on kind of on kind of Twitter is the extent to which things are being made scarier in Andor than have previously been TIE fighters are scary in Andor. Uh, they're not mm-hmm. scary in Star Wars films because they're made of cardboard and they blow up and everyone gets away. But just having that, you know, just a lone TIE fighter screaming down a valley and everybody kind of covering up the weapons and that's that that kind of uh, the sound that a tie fighter's made which is taken from the Jericho siren of um Stuka Dive Bombers in the Second World War, they feel uh. scary. Um they're designed mm-hmm. to be scary. Um and I find that really interesting the the way that because we're so grassroots you know it's it's five people pulling a bank heist the arrival of a tie fighter at the wrong time is going to wipe out your rebel cell you know you're not mm-hmm. going to get a lightsaber out and bat away with a light, you know the blast and you're not going to shoot it. it you're just going to get killed um and i i find that element that they're doing of because they're so close to the ground any imperial involvement is scary the empire is scarier. In Andor than I think it's been in a lot of other kind of Star Wars media and Star Wars shows, which I like. Mm-hmm. Um and a slightly more kind of uh light-hearted element, because Andor seemingly was filmed a lot in the UK um in in studios over here, quite a lot of the actors around it are are British actors that are recognizable from other TV shows, including quite a lot of soap operas um, ah. that have appeared. So, you know, the um the the like the security guard the the, the scottish guy who convinces um uh, what's the what's the name of um who convinces cyril to kind of go down to Ferrex and and take him over um yeah so
0: linus i think linus yeah. musk yes
1: Something like that. He, he was like in a in a UK soap like 10, 15 years ago. He's like, oh, oh okay, you, you used to be in that show and now you're you now you're a space fascist. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> um, but it, it adds in like a, a like a weird element that probably isn't doesn't exist for the um for the like the American audience of going, I know you from somewhere, what are you doing here? Um right. but the the character who I think interestingly to end on is probably Cyril Khan himself um Mm -hmm. this this kind of interesting character and I've seen people on on Twitter having really interesting discussions and threads saying you know there's an element of he is the mirror opposite of Andor of Cassian himself at the moment you know both have got kind of slightly weird family situations both feel abandoned both kind of looking for for something to do and Andor is headed towards rebellion and Cyril is headed towards the empire but what I find interesting about Cyril is that I spoke in the book a little bit of the empire being the preserve at times of petty fascists, you know, deeply mediocre men with delusions of grandeur. Mm -hmm. And it's hard not to look at him and go, you are a petty fascist because he has (laughs) these, you know, he gets, you know, especially told, do not go and do this thing. You're going to annoy the empire. That's going to cause us a problem. But then the tempting power thing glistens in front of him. So he goes off and, and does it and he talks you know passionately about you know we have to do this we have to you know show that you can't do these to our people and that you know I, these two guys got killed but when he gets his moment with all of those security guys to kind of give them a rousing speech he's got nothing he doesn't have he doesn't have it in him because he right there's no charisma there's no there's no burning element in there to motivate people what he wants them to recognize is the opportunity of the power and he could have said, you know, take this as an example. If you ever end up face down in an alleyway, I will make sure that me and all of these guys are going to come and avenge you. And that's how you motivate a bunch of people to go out and do this thing. Go, you know, I we're not going to allow this to happen to them because I'm not going to allow this to happen to you. And instead, it's just kind of. yeah, It's nice you came along. Let's let's go do a thing. Um, <laughs> and what you end up with on on the planet is again it's it's a it's a comment on particular films but it's also a comment on a wider movement of you know a police force that comes down and just starts brutalizing people you know i don't think again in 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 a kind of a a black lives matter era i don't think it's a coincidence that a bunch of guys with guns in blue uniforms just shot someone who was trying to you know rescue his wife who was being beaten up um Mm -hmm. and you end up with the the final bit where they're all on these rooftops and they're gonna you know make sure that the up car doesn't doesn't do anything and and then um, the guy in charge who I'm going to refer to as Trevor because that's his name in the soap opera that he was <laughs> in the that he in. Um, Trevor there's, there's these explosions and like and he looks around and goes we're under siege go, but you shouldn't even be here you've landed hmm. on a planet that isn't yours you're enforcing law upon them and what I ended up thinking about was the film black hawk down um wow. of you know you your your helicopter's crashed and you're surrounded by all these people who don't want you here and they go oh my god we're under attack it's Like, what are you doing there it's mm-hmm. it's that element they've inserted themselves into this onto the planet of ferrix and now that people are pushing back like, oh my god we're under attack we you know we're under siege we have to do something and it's that that mindset of well if you hadn't come you you wouldn't be in this situation and for you now to basically assume that you are under siege because people are rejecting your presence is a really interesting commentary on you know historical colonialism and you know it's 100 it's you know any number of examples through the british empire of people you know, you know britain turning up in somebody else's country sticking a flag in the ground and people going yeah we're not keen on this go whoa 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 whoa, whoa! you don't need to start you know getting angry and starting throwing you know swords and guns and that about you know i'm feeling very attacked right now that kind of Colonial reflex to being rejected um, is super interesting, and it's it's kind of exactly the type of thing that I was hoping for in elements. But the realization of it on the screen is is fascinating to me, and I am getting a huge kick out of it.
0: That's awesome! I am so glad you're enjoying it, and you have you know a level of experience and scholarship that allows you the potential to experience it on yet another level and i'm (laughs) especially grateful for the fact that you're able to enjoy it on that level as well for people who are hearing a conversation between us for the first time or are not familiar with you and want to learn more about your writing and your and your background and your books where should people keep up with you
1: um, so I mean you know if if you've been in you know sitting on here going, you know, this is a level of analysis of a Star Wars show that I don't need in my life, you can get more of it. <laughs> um on you know on Twitter, um at Chris Kempshaw, um where I will continue, you know, within the confines of not giving spoilers away to overanalyze um something that I love, um, presumably for the rest of time. Um If you want to kind of read some of the things um, that have kind of informed my kind of thought process of of, of Star Wars and the like, but is now also annoyingly slightly outdated because of Andor, um, you can get my book, (laughs) um, which is called The History and Politics of Star Wars, uh, Death Stars and Democracy. I'll similar to last time, I'll give you a a, a 25% discount code. We can put them in if you want to put them in the show notes where people can make use of it and get it and get the book for a bit cheaper. then yeah you know that's kind of my my foundation level of you know how do we understand and place Star Wars in a historical political um framework and pleasingly whilst you know I joke about the book being outdated um what's helpful is and always not diverging from the model that I kind of suggested existed in the books if they had massively contradicted it this would be a lot more awkward um than (laughs) than it is um So, yeah, I I still think that Andor plays very nicely alongside the book. But then I would say that because I want people to buy and read and enjoy (laughs) enjoy the book. Um, So, yeah, those are those are good places. You know, if you like in-universe Star Wars stuff, I did... I co-wrote with Jason Fry and Amy Radcliffe and Cole Horton the book um, Star Wars Battles that Change the Galaxy, uh, which does Star Wars battles and Star Wars military stuff and strategy. And, and that's a that's a fun read as well. So by I don't have a, I don't have a discount code for that, unfortunately, but um, I imagine you can find it from places that sell books.
0: I imagine so as well. And I'll look to find those and link it. I will link all of this at the blog post for the show's episode at sw7x7.com and in the show notes as well. And I'll get that coupon code from you after we wrap this up. I'll make sure that appears there too. The always charmingly self-deprecating Chris Kemshaw. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time and for joining me for a very fun discussion. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you for having me, and, and enjoy, everybody, and continue enjoying Andor. There's, there's, there's loads more to come.
0: And there you go. That does it for my most recent conversation with Chris Kempshall, the author of The History and Politics of Star Wars, and that also does it for this episode of the podcast. It just remains for me to say thank you so much for joining me for it, as always, and may the Force be with you wherever in the world you may be.